You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything. available everywhere you get your podcasts. Monster House presents... Monster Talks, a proud member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network, home of such shows as Kick-Ass News, Movie Therapy, and Therapist Uncensored. If you'd like to advertise on this show, contact sales at advertisecast.com. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. Today's episode is a little bit of catching up with Blake and Karen, but it's also a light introduction to a class of monsters that I've been procrastinating about talking about. I like Monster Talk to cover subjects with more depth than your average YouTuber or podcaster or self-published cryptozoology author. And while editing this episode, I kept thinking about this class of topics that I've been putting off. The monster, or maybe it's the monsters, that we're going to be talking about today is the wampus cat. Now, as a lifelong resident of North Georgia, I've heard mention of this animal many times. Even today, I had lunch with my parents, and I asked my dad, who also has lived here his whole life, about the topic. And he said, I've heard about them all my life, but I've never met anybody who claims to have seen or heard one nor do I know anyone who claims to know someone who has seen or heard one. But yet, they're around. The stories are around. Still, I know I heard my grandmother mention them, and they certainly figure into Appalachian folklore, but they're also an indigenous legend of the Cherokee. And if you do any research in folklore books or on the internet, you'll also find statements that a wampus cat is either the same or similar to the water panther, another indigenous legend. But is it? Even as I edited the episode, my brow furrowed in worry that the confusing interplay of legends from multiple cultures may have put a deep understanding of this topic out of reach. 
I don't know why I get so caught up in this, but I, I like to find out what the source of a story is as though that's the real story. But how do you do that when the source comes from a time before the originating culture had written language? And the stories likely were shared across multiple tribes for many years. And the cultures in question used stories and dance and arts in ways that would be changed irrevocably with the coming of colonial Europeans and their religions. And the pioneers would appropriate parts of these stories to explain their own experiences and sightings. So whose wampus cat story do we tell? Is it a creature of flesh? Is it a mythical hybrid? Is it a made-up story to scare children into safety? And how much of the original story is left and how much is repurposed witch and werewolf lore recast as American frontier fantasy? I don't have easy answers to these hard questions, but Karen and I decided to at least start the conversations today. And I wanted to reiterate my concern that a complete conversation about this topic and similar classes of monsters warrant an extra level of effort to help give the context that's often missing. It is this complexity that has kept me off of talking about the Wampus Cat, the Water Panther, the Wendigo, and the Puckwudgie. And it's also kept me from talking about the indigenous lore of the Skinwalker, except to say that whatever a Skinwalker is, it's got little to do with the so-called Skinwalker Ranch. Stay tuned, because I'm going to try and get the right experts on it to help us get a better understanding of the role that these creatures play in their original cultures, as well as how the stories have been taken up by paranormal enthusiasts, and others. To be clear here, my constraint is a personal one built out of a wish to provide content that is good enough for my own weirdly exacting tastes. But in the meantime, here's a conversation about wampus cats and, like the proverbial elephant, it's a big meal and we can only take one bite at a time. Monster Dog. All right, Karen, it's good to hear your voice, but for the first time in a long time, I can actually... Imagine talking to you in person because it's fresh in my mind from having actually happened. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. I think that was the first time that we've uh, caught up face-to-face in about four years. Yeah, yeah. It's a strange way of working, yeah, but it was, Even yeah. <laughs> still, we didn't get that much time together because everything was just a flurry of events uh, and we had family with us as well. Um, so, yeah, we didn't really get to spend that much time together. But what are we talking about? What did we just come off of? <laughs> yeah, I guess we should clue everyone in. So, yeah, we just uh, came back from a trip to Jacksonville, Alabama, <laughs> where we had been invited to talk at Jacksonville State University by friend of the show, Tanya Sasser, uh, who's an instructor in English at, at JSU. Yeah. She in- invited us to uh, come and talk to her her students and to the the cam- well, basically talk on campus uh, to um, anyone who was interested in, in attending. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that, that was just a, a lot of fun to talk to her students who are students in podcasting, which I think is a relatively new subject at university level because yeah. when I went to university, it certainly wasn't available. So we've, we've done these kinds of university programs a few times now, and uh, they're really delightful. And so, uh, obviously, and I guess this is where we should say, if you're interested in having us speak at your university, please reach out to us to Blake at MonsterTalk.org or Karen at MonsterTalk.org. We could probably arrange something. But Absolutely. We love things like this, love meeting uh, you know instructors and teachers and 
professors and students and um, just it, it's like a kind of think tank. It really is. Days. It's great. It's great. And, and exactly. And you get to hear how people are using your topic in their classrooms and, and, and almost uh, yeah. I guess every since we, we went, I guess our first one was Texas Tech in Texas Lubbock. Texas Tech. And that was David mm-hmm. Perlmutter who arranged that. Thank you, David. Uh, and it was a lot of fun too. The, the at that time too. This, similarly, they were people in the communications department there instead of the English department. But same idea right. of people learning how to do the business of podcasting, how to do the writing of podcasting, mm-hmm. uh, how to you know work through this, this very uh, dynamically changing ecosystem. But uh, and we also get to talk about monsters. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, how do we incorporate monsters into the the mix? Exactly. Indeed. So. Yeah, I've, so during this visit, I picked up a cold, which you can hear, yeah. and we also went out to lunch with Tanya and some of her students, and uh, that was really enjoyable, just great to hear what people are working on. And so at one point, Tanya mentions the Wampus Cat. That's right. And I'm like, the Wattus Cat? What? And, <laughs> and I was Blake, I was ashamed. You all about it. Like, was all about it. <laughs> Well, I, it, it, it's not quite my stomping grounds, but certainly um, it, I grew up at the sort of foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. And uh, that kind of lore is more north of here, but uh, it's definitely uh, something I heard about growing up and my grandmother had talked about it. I think it's spread around the country, too, because in discussing this with Matt, he said, oh, have you ever heard of the term kitty wampus? And I'm That's right. Like, no. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and what does that mean? So he said it was a term that his parents would use to talk about something being chaotic or disorganized. Uh, so, yeah, it, it seems like it's uh, linguistically it is really spread. And there, there seem to be lots of different names for this particular cryptid as well. Not only the Wampus Cat, but the I've heard of Willy Cat. I like that one. And Galley Wampus and yeah. oh, a few others. It's a, I guess it depends on the region. It does. And uh, as we'll discuss, I think the complexity and the number of ways the story has spread, I think is uh, a product of a, a lot of different uh, sort of cultural things going on. So on the one yeah. hand, you've got these stories are part of indigenous uh, North American tribal lore, but right, originally, originally, but and, and it's it's a set of stories that probably were already interplaying uh, uh, pre-colonial. Uh, so right. so like, like in the north, there's a version of this kind of animal that's very tied into what uh, we would probably hear about as water panthers. Uh, they've got a bunch of different names for these, but. It sounds weird because it, the I think coming from a sort of Western tradition, the idea of a water cat doesn't make a lot of biological sense, but it was a very powerful sort of supernatural mythical force uh, that I think in the simplest parallel would say it's kind of like the water horse where it had a the Kelpie. Yeah. The, so it's one of these monster in the water that has a... Um, a prescriptive kind of, you know, be careful. It also has cautionary tale. Cautionary tale. Yeah. It also has sort of an explanatory value of like someone. Well, this fierce uh, warrior, good swimmer, somehow went out mm-hmm. in his canoe and then disappeared. That's not natural. It must have been, you know, this animal that right. did it. That kind of thing. Attributed to that, yeah. We've talked a lot about uh, 
alien big cats. And uh, yes. I mean, this is not only something that found or not found in North America, but also in Australia. And it seems to be another one of those universals, uh, these cats, often panthers too. It seems like in Australia, the belief was that these were panthers that were brought in by perhaps American soldiers during World War II. So often it's an animal that is not native to the area and is introduced somehow and has become a problem. And I think the term has gotten muddied up quite a bit because uh, pioneers uh, would use that term to refer to any sort of mystery sound. Uh, If you heard like a weird noise out at night, that's probably just the wampus cat, uh, and that it's a coyote or a well, yeah, it could really be a lot of things. But as a story, I think the the wampus cat, you know, just tell is an answer. My mom used to always uh, do a thing where she would have quick answers, and if I kept pressing her, she'd say, "Go to the encyclopedia." And so, wampus cat would have been. Well, that's probably just a wampus cat. It would be like one of those Google kind of, is your friend, right? Right. So yeah. <laughs> the the original version of that, yeah. I mean, obviously, it's a monster that I was aware of, but I the reason I didn't want to tackle it, you know, quickly, and I and I really feel like this is maybe a preliminary episode on this, is because sure. the way the monster has evolved over time and been spread from culture to culture means there's kind of mm-hmm. a, a lot of sort of sticky issues to kind of work through. It it is right. very much something, you know. There's I, there's sort of a uh, this idea, I think I first saw it sort of codified in uh, a book called Complexity. And it's this idea that, you know, if you have a complicated system, it might have sort of come to be from a lot of different angles. And it's really impossible to work out from the pieces where did it come from exactly, unless you have like a lot more information. Yes. So yeah. in, in biology, you could take two species that aren't related but seem to have some similarity, or maybe they're related, I should say, but mm-hmm. they're, they're not closely related. And you can look at their DNA, and you can actually sort of figure mm-hmm. out molecularly where they diverged as a species. There's other angles right. to like sort of dig in on that. So, for example, where do they last appear separately, you know, in the in the biological, in the fossil record, you know. So mm-hmm. those kind of things give you some, some sort of guidance, at least roughly when this happened, where it happened. But with right. things that are intellectual, like if you want to talk about them as memes or elements of folklore, whatever, these little pieces of the mm-hmm. story, these appear in multiple cultures. And this one is such a mishmash and mm-hmm. it, it's obvious that parts of it had to come from Europe, but parts of it came right. from tribal lore. But which mm-hmm. tribes and when, hard to say. Mm-hmm. And then further complicating it is it seems like the Cherokees version of the story might have come from the sort of northeastern tribes. But then mm-hmm. the Cherokee get um, – and this is oversimplification – but they get – dominated and ultimately mostly kicked out of the the area uh, mm. of the, the Carolinas and Georgia uh, during the uh, Jackson administration. Now you get the Trail of mm-hmm. Tears where they're driven out to Kansas. Right. But during that mm. period, that's that's the the, the the this is going to sound terrible, but I think a lot of people in Georgia considered uh, the Cherokee to be I'm air quoting a civilized tribe, which is to say they had their own rules and ultimately even made their own newspapers. They had their own alphabet. They had, you know, they mm-hmm. were very much working through this European colonization process 
and blending in and they were landowners they had all these rights and it was it was really mm. it, who knows how it might have turned out but then mm. fa- famously there was this really uh really bad situation where and I, that's a judgment call but yeah really bad where basically some people in the Cherokee nation uh sold the land illegally to the American government. There was a whole thing where uh, the Supreme Court tried to stop Jackson from kicking everybody out. And Jackson was like, well, they can say that, but let's see him enforce it. It was bad. It was really bad. And then on the trail itself, lots mm-hmm. of people died. And then I think there was a mm-hmm. uh, one of those nights of revenge where the people who felt like their land had been stolen went around and uh, revenge murdered the people who were involved. It's complicated. I, I'm yeah. not. This is not a, a great history podcast. Uh, you know, generally, I, I don't. I'm not prepared to talk about this as though this were a history class. I could just say that all of these pieces complicate the story of the Wampus Cat, and I, I want to be Absolutely. aware. Absolutely. So yeah. So. Oh yeah. This is it's so complicated, and all of this is interwoven with uh, the history of a lot of cryptids. It is. In fact, I think that's been kind of a recurring theme uh, that we've kind of touched on, but I'm not sure exactly what to yeah. do with it. You've, off the record, mm-hmm. we've talked about some ideas about how to address this, and I like those, yeah. but that's for the future. I'm not going to even hint at it. But uh, but this idea like of... You just did. Like, well, I guess that is hinting at it, technically. But I, was like, de- <laughs> I don't think it's possible to have... Uh, that's a terrible way to start a sentence, isn't it? Anyway, but I mean, decolonizing cryptozoology is a tall order, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. and I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, this is a good example of why, because in addition to the native uh, folklores and myths of the wampus cat, there mm-hmm. is a, a really robust folklore of the wampus cat coming out of the Scotch-Irish Appalachian community, where mm-hmm. it is uh, the story takes on the uh, elements of European werewolf stories. So there's lots and lots of stories that involve a woman who lives apart. Mm -hmm. Uh, We might identify her as sort of a witch-type character. She's uh, European, but she makes a deal with some entity and is given instructions on how to make a, a fur belt or a fur coat that she puts on and then becomes the wampus cat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and th- yeah, very, very werewolf-like. Very werewolf-like. And um, mm-hmm. that version, uh, there's a, I think there's a Twilight Zone that was written by Earl Hamner. Now, most people will probably know him from uh, the Waltons TV show in the 70s. But Hamner also wrote a lot of uh, sort of weird fiction stories uh, as well, mm-hmm. all set in Appalachia. Uh, for the most part, and he wrote one called the I think the Witching Pool, but he also w- wrote one about a, a a woman who turns into a a big cat, and I think uh, that one has um, some of these elements here. And then w- Manly Wade yes. Wellman was another uh, Appalachian uh, folk writer from the Carolinas who also incorporated this again the same sort of approach to the Wampus Cat, where um, right. he, he's got characters like Silver John uh, and some others who I, mean, I really like his stuff. I just read. They've recently put all his whole collection onto Audible. I tore through that. Mm-hmm. It was really fun. Uh, paranormal. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I, I like those pulp stories. So, And another version I'd heard, too, was uh, this, this woman was not a witch, but she was a woman belonging to a, a particular tribe. Um, sometimes it said the Cherokee people and that uh, she had 
tried to follow the the men when they were on secret men's business mm. and uh, to to go and witness what they were doing and came across them during some kind of ritual or ceremony where they were performing magic and she was caught and found out and then punished by being turned into this hybrid woman cat you know half woman half cat um figure and that that was punishment for her so it seems like there are a lot of different stories out there and um i guess we should talk a little bit more about the creature and and what it is because in some versions it's a cat in some versions it's a uh a feline creature of some kind or it's a a hybrid half person half woman in particular half cat um i've heard of cases where it's supposedly has three pairs of legs yes yeah it it almost sounds like it's a centaur of a a, but like a part woman part cat but most of the depictions i've seen and these are you know largely drawn from you know modern people who play video games and stuff they've they draw it they draw it more so for our listeners who know the displacer beast from dungeons and dragons the that if you saw the movie that's a a creature that shows up in the film uh it's a six-legged panther uh I think it's oh, six. It might be have eight, but it, it has tentacles on its back and teleports and stuff. So it's not quite that. But a, if you can imagine mm-hmm. a six-legged panther and sometimes with more humanoid features in the upper torso. Uh, and glowing gold eyes. Yeah, like, yeah. Like a cat would have anyway. Yeah. I think uh, that that's the other thing is because it is itself a, a, a narrative hybrid and it, its depiction involves hybridity. Uh, we, mm-hmm. we get all kinds of elements all over the place geographically, depending on what the popular story. Oh, and it's also a sports ball right. team name. That's another thing. But, you know, down in Florida, yeah, they have, you know, they have Florida Panthers are real cats. They have like big cats. And then um, mm-hmm. in other parts of the country, there used to be Panthers, but they've been largely wiped out. And in the realms of how this kind of crosses over with the alien big cats in cryptozoology, mm-hmm. there's in the state of Pennsylvania, for example, uh, the Department of Natural Resources said that all of the large cats have been exterminated. But uh, at least for mm. the past 30 or 40 years, there's been a continuing online uh sort of argument that uh no 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 they're real but the dnr's covering it up so nobody's right nobody's provided <laughs> a a sort of definitive proof of the uh, of their still being there and there's nothing like a lot of alien big cats a normal four-legged big cat is not biologically implausible it's about finding them in unusual areas where they're not supposed to be that's, that's right that, that's what makes yeah. them alien um it's just that yes. they're yeah, alien in, to their their ex- environment exactly <laughs> Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. 
Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. We've got a podcast recommendation I think will be really fun and are useful for Monster Talk listeners. I Know Dino, the big dinosaur podcast. Studying dinosaurs can teach us about the prehistoric world, but also the world of today. For example, migration patterns of dinosaur lineages can tell us about the Earth's changing continents. Climate models of dinosaur ecosystems help us understand global warming. Studying dinosaur diets can help show the link between plant and animal evolution. Talk about paleo. Hmm. In many dinosaur <laughs> injuries, paleopathologies are the first known occurrences of diseases. A new episode of I Know Dino comes out every week with new dinosaur discoveries you won't hear about anywhere else. You can find I Know Dino on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I, there's probably out there somewhere the idea of an alien as an extraterrestrial um, cat. As oh, well. I'm sure. I mean, <laughs> why you, not? You remember when the chupacabra first started being reported? People people claimed that. Uh, well, they've also claimed there's a Bigfoot right. that that these are yeah. pets that got off the flying saucers or you know. Yes, spaceships and yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah, but certainly with the wampus cat, I've I've seen depictions uh, of it being a panther, a black panther. Sometimes it's got stripes. Sometimes it's got spots. I looked up a few videos on YouTube as well of people claiming they've found it in the woods, and they usually look like tabby cats from a distance, and it's you, the perspective is kind of all out and. Looks, they look like normal cats. Yeah, and I I, I went cats. back into feral uh, cats. Yeah, <laughs> I, I went I went into newspapers uh, dot com, uh, looking for stories about the wampus cat from eighteen fifty to nineteen fifty, and there there's actually quite a lot of them, uh, and mm-hmm. they they fall into the like nineteen twenties and thirties people reporting hearing them and seeing them. Uh, as real animals, these are these are very much like uh, people in the newspapers reporting wild man stories and all kinds of other sort right. of unusual slow news days. We might call it, uh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah not not to c- a, go off on a, a fast uh, news day for for people like us. Well, yeah, no, exciting for us. I, it, I, <laughs> but I ran into this thing where I went to newspapers dot com, where I've been a happy subscriber for a long time and use it frequently on podcast research. And they've added a whole bunch more newspapers, but now they're offering tiered uh, service. So, like, they want the oh. subscriptions more than double to get to all the good articles. I'm so annoyed. Uh, wow. So oh. now I'm, Hopefully I like, there's an alternative to that. I pff, No, there's no alternative to capitalism. Are you crazy? Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I'm wondering is with these alleged sightings, how the bulk of them do seem to be in the 1850s through to the 1950s as you looked up. And why is it that the sightings seem to peter out from that point, or are there continued sightings today? I mean, YouTube would tell me that people believe they're still seeing something out there. Yeah, no, people are still reporting them. I just think that in the uh, in this modern age, it's it's more likely they're going to be reported as a traditional cat, so like more like an ABC sighting yeah. in in the UK. Yeah, I, uh, the I think even cryptozoologists have largely conceded largely 
that uh, a, a hexapod feline is not lurking in the wilds of America. Like the the six leggedness of it definitely falls into what a uh, uh, friend of the show, Joshua Cutchin, would call weird washing. <laughs> it's like like. We don't want to admit that, you know, like, yeah, we, we're, we're going to go and shave off those two extra legs we saw. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, well, I think in some versions, too, um, if the, the creature didn't have six legs, it might have had six claws or, uh, you know, additional claws. Matt calls them a, a dew claw. Oh, yeah. Or an escape clause. Yeah. What? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Indeed. Uh. But yeah, it does seem like the the bulk of sightings were around that period, and um, you know nowadays that certainly it's evolved. And as you you're mentioning, uh, it's really evolved into popular culture, even to the point where the wampus cat is mentioned in Harry Potter. That's right. That's right. Uh, as part of the, uh, uh, I believe it's part of the Strange Beasts and Where to Find Them. That whole sort of spinoff. They have uh, right. America has a, or North America has uh, United States is what I'm trying to say has a, a magic school of its own and, and they talk about the wampus uh, cat in there and uh, I think it might even be one of the houses one of the houses I believe uh, like we have you know Gryffindor we have what am I talking about like I <laughs> <laughs> one slither into another yeah. But one yeah. thing that I, I, I ran across that I, I found really fascinating was uh, the Cherokee uh, would incorporate uh, the wampus cat idea with some dances and masks. Um, and there was this idea of the booger mask. And I, it's just, just as a side read, this was really interesting. The The masks are, uh, they remind me a little bit of some of the masks that they have uh, in uh, Japanese uh, stage. You, I don't know what that's called. Okay. There's a special name for it where like very cartoonish masks. And these yes, were. I know what you're talking about. I can't think of the word right now. This is a gigaku mask. <laughs> okay. It's a very cartoonish kind of a mask. Um, and I'm not sure exactly uh, it says expressive and comic in nature. We, we I'll be honest. My, I first ran into these masks uh, without knowing what they were in, in, in my casual reading. But the first time I saw them and thought, what is that? Was they, they showed up in the cartoon series Demon Slayer. And uh, there, there's a sword village where they make uh, all the sword makers go to this one village. And they wear these masks as part of their anonymity. Uh, but anyway, the, the booger mask okay. of the Cherokee. This is made and out is that of... that the term that... The Cherokee people use a booger mask because the yes, kind of sounds it's European, like a isn't it? Man sounds European, exactly, and it is because the whole thing of the Cherokee would not have called them booger masks. That's what, Probably not. right? But the the uh, Americans uh, or the you know the pioneer settler type people would have, right. and right. but the funny part is what they were used for. Okay, so here's the thing: Cherokee culture took a huge hit, a huge hit. When it was mm -hmm. forced to do the Trail of Tears and flee, so much so they had, like you know they uh, Sequoia developed the uh, alphabet. They had their own newspaper and all this sort of stuff. Yet these traditions of the these masked dances and that that stuff was suppressed by missionaries. And tr in a lot mm. of the Cherokee converted to Christianity and sort of just were herded into residential schools. Uh, and... Yeah, it's like it, it's, it's mm. a cultural erasure. Is what it really is, right? Yes, so, absolutely. Um, 
Very and sad. So they know the booger masks were a thing, and they mm-hmm. know what they were used for, yet they don't have explicit descriptions of how they were utilized, right? And right. But, but so they, these, these cartoonish masks made of gourd and fur and paint, um, they used them in ceremonies where the person wearing the mask would be an outsider, and they would come into the Cherokee uh, figuratively through dance and do outrageously socially inappropriate things. Uh, and, and these sort of were mocking the Europeans. Uh, Sounds like yeah, it. And, and, and so <laughs> Missionaries. Exactly. And so, I mean, they would do things like they would like have a big coat and then they would open their coat and have a, a, a water bladder and, you know, figuratively pee on the audience, that kind of thing, you know? So things that were wildly wow. inappropriate. Yeah. It's like, it's, that's a lot of stagecraft. Like yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, uh, in, in a tribal setting that I really can't mm-hmm. even begin to give context to, <laughs> but, <laughs> but the interesting thing is Amazing. that the, the booger mask tradition, the making of the masks has come back. In Kansas, and there's people now teaching the craft. And from what I understand, I haven't looked into this, but uh, also trying to resurrect uh, that figure and the dances and that mm-hmm. sort of thing, which is, I think, necessarily going to sort of be like Wicca in that you're trying to construct the thing as though it were historically co- had continuity, well, but it doesn't. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, but who better to? you know, redefine that than the Cherokee people themselves, you know. Absolutely, for them to do, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So it's a complicated topic. This is is just interesting how how broad um, these these beliefs and stories are and and legends that, I mean, it seems like uh, they kind of focused on the the South, but that they have spread around the country. Right. And I'm wondering if there's, yeah, if this is – has this spread to uh, Canada as well? Well, they have the Mishapishu uh, is, uh, I think, Ojibwe. Uh, I hope I'm saying that right. Uh, that that the whole the Northeast, including in Canada, has the water panther. Uh, oh right, yes, belief system. But it's different from tribe to tribe, and it also is tied mm. into things like some people think that the water panther fits into lake monsters, right? And so. Yeah, I can yeah. see the crossover there. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I think some cryptozoologists would would see the uh, the water panther as being part of that mm-hmm. lake lake monster tradition, whereas the wampus mm-hmm. cats, like even though I think it's tied to the same lore, is you know you hear it. I've heard tale of it more in terms of a terrestrial cat maybe living in the swamp, but you don't usually hear the wampus cat described as being an underwater cat, at least down here. Uh, I see. So, so there's a lot. Yeah, this this whole the indigeneity, the indigenous lore is going to be different over time, over space, Mm -hmm. across tribes, and 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 I'll add into that that you know now we've got uh, the internet helping mishmash this stuff even more, right? So it's it's oh yeah, it's it's really complicated to just go looking this up online or on YouTube. There's just such a mishmash of stories and theories out there it's it's really leveled really strange yeah but um and it seems to be a real cultural relic today in a linguistic sense where it's just used as a an explanatory tool yeah um it's lost it's it's, it's lost its identity like it's all the sort of contextual uh things that would give it a a a meaning for i think an easily understood meaning 
have been stripped away. Yeah. And, and so it, when it gets re- it gets turned into a football team, uh, you know, yes. that's that's you might just well, it's a fierce animal, but like not understanding the, the actual significance of it. Um, I would right, just oh, to explain a weird noise. And I, I have to add one more little uh, place that's popped up. And I, I love this a lot. And that is um, there are there's a computer game called Hunt the Wumpus. Uh, and it was developed in the very early yeah. 1970s, and it's a kind of a fun wow. ma- maze game. You're basically wandering around in a maze and trying to figure out mm-hmm. if you can see the wumpus, and if you can, you can sort of shoot an arrow at it. Uh, but okay. you only have a limited number of arrows, and if you land on the wumpus, it'll kill you. So it's it's, it's complicated. Oh. <laughs> but but there was a really wonderful uh, computer game called Mule with this M period, U period, L period, E period. I think it's, it's this from memory. I think it was multiple use labor implement. And it was, you, the idea was you go to a planet to colonize and mm-hmm. everybody has these multi-purpose mule things that they have to use to set up their farms. And so it's a colonization game uh, on a foreign planet. And when you've finished all the tasks that you could do on your turn, you only have a limited amount of time. Mm-hmm. There is an extra bonus game where you can hunt the wampus. You hunt the mountain wampus. Now, that game was uh-huh. developed by Ozark Software, and uh, which was, uh, I think the head programmer was uh, Danielle Bunting. Um, she's an interesting character herself. That's a, I can put a link in the show notes. Uh, but she made several games that uh, are extremely important to me. Uh, they from the South? Um, she she was from Arkansas, mostly. And uh, she was, uh, I think, born in... Um, uh, Missouri, uh, but spent most of her life okay. in Arkansas. So, yeah, I think that the uh, Wamp- mountain wampus uh, sure sounds like the wampus cat to me. Uh, but nice. you, but you can catch the the wampus and get some extra cash for your your game. It's a it's a fun <laughs> game. I I can put a link to that as well. It's a brilliant game because you're colonists and someone can definitely be a winner. But if anybody uses excessive capitalistic tendencies and like tries to steal, like make all the most money, but locks up uh-huh. all the resources, you may win the game by numbers, but the colony fails because you didn't allow enough resources to be spread among everyone, which I think is a, oh, a brilliant. Very ahead of its idea. time. Yes. No, it is a really good game for teaching about sort of capitalism can go bad like i i don't have a better system yes. in mind but it, if you don't keep checks and balances <laughs> then greed will make everybody suffer you know one person will have enough money to Absolutely. buy everything and everybody else is just screwed yeah. so <laughs> we, we have seen that yeah so one other thing occurred to me too i've heard in some uh cases that the wampus cat is actually a half dog so it could be like a half dog half cat um, have, have you heard of any? I think those are cogs or are, are, uh, dats, right? <laughs> dats and cogs living together. No, I have not heard that. I, I did see that on an internet page, uh, but I haven't mm-hmm. seen it in, in – this would be being snooty. But I haven't seen it in a book. <laughs> right. So well, Yeah, I think it just reminds me of some uh, native uh, or some uh, indigenous Australian – creatures as well that they're a mix of the crocodile and birds and um you know dogs and dingoes and, and things like that so uh, i just think in some versions they're, they're really out there with the the different variations of the the creature the beast now 
I would say if this if this conversation seems a little rambly, I, we were trying to get to a lot of information in a short amount of time. But when we talked uh, to Tanya about about this topic, this was what I was trying to explain. It's like I have so many complicated ideas about this, and there are so many complicated ideas about this topic that it was hard mm-hmm. to kind of pick one and stick to it. So we've just done a, a quick. Uh, hopefully not yeah, too quick, of, quick, quick intro all over the place a bit, uh, but, but uh, yeah, I mean, we, I think we should delve into this further. Do a yes. Deep I think there's several sort of vectors to come out of this that we can sort of, uh, get further in on. And one of them is I'd like to understand why the water Panther as a, as a concept is so popular, not popular is the wrong word. So widely, uh, common in the in the mm-hmm. in the northeast uh and and i and I'm, I'm suspecting that it would be easier to understand if i were seeing more uh folklore rather than the sort of uh post cryptozoology interpretations of the folklore that i usually run into right. so so yeah. finding someone who does folklore stories of those tribes uh, as uh, you know as, as an oral tradition versus the Here's 25 cryptozoology books and how they try to tie, you know, native lore into monster hunting. And that's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if you look at like the uh, Eberhard uh, encyclopedias, a ton of that book is that kind of a thing where they just take a native lore and say, that might be a real monster. That might be a real monster. I'm like, well, okay, right. but maybe it's a, it's an important folklore and you shouldn't reduce it to a, is it a monster? Is it real kind of thing? Maybe there's more going exactly. on there. So. For sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, we definitely need to delve into this further. And, and this is really just touching upon this, I think, because it came up within the context of our trip. And it was, oh, this is a fun idea. This is something we haven't discussed before. Exactly. And, and yet yeah, go ahead. we have had requests for this topic or similar topics. Yes. And, and I we will definitely be talking about these more. Anyway, I want to say thank you to Tanya and to uh, the Jacksonville State University for having us out. Yes. Uh, we had yeah, such it was a wonderful, a wonderful time. trip. It really was. Yeah, and it was, uh, it was great. And it was great to catch up with you again. Like, and I just want to give a little shout out to the Calhoun Steakhouse. Uh, I've been on a low carb diet for a long time. And I had. And they broke that. <laughs> I had their bread pudding, and it may be the finest dessert I've ever put in my mouth. It was so good. Uh, it, yeah, I didn't get to try it, unfortunately, but yeah, you've, you've been raving about it ever uh, since. So it is, it's, it's driving me crazy how good it is. It, it's like I, it's a, that's only like, it's less than a two hour drive to Jacksonville. And I'm already like telling Kathleen, it's like, you know, <laughs> I, I wouldn't mind putting <laughs> an, an audio book on. Exactly. I was going to throw an <laughs> audio book on and drive and get us a bread pudding, you know, for something. Yeah. I really, uh, really, I really like a good it. recipe, I think. Yeah, is the white chocolate. It's so good. It's so good. Anyway, okay. So, <laughs> enough of that. Anyway, thank you everyone for tuning into another episode. Yes. Thanks for listening. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You just heard Karen and me discussing the complicated topic of the Wampus Cat and recounting our delightful visit to Jacksonville State University, Alabama. We will be diving deeper into indigenous lore in future conversations, so please stay tuned. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org 
forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles, so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. And we've said it before, but it bears repeating. Keep off the moors! Oh, but also, thank you for listening. Monster House presentation.